Hello and welcome to What Editors Want, a brand new podcast where I, Philip Connor, interview a different editor from the world of publishing each week to ask them what it is they look for in a book and where it is that they find their authors. Throughout season one, you're going to be hearing from the very big to the very small, from the very traditional to the cutting edge, and I hope by the end of it you'll have built up a picture of the publishing landscape that helps readers, aspiring authors, and even aspiring publishers find their place in it. I'm pleased to say we're kicking episode one off with a bang. This week's guest is Faber and Faber's Louisa Joyner. Louisa is the editor behind books like Call Me By Your Name, The Shock of the Fall, and even the Booker Prize winning Milkman. We met at Faber and Faber's offices in the shadow of the British Museum to discuss how Louise's background in academia paved way into publishing, and the difference, or lack thereof, of publishing commercial novels versus literary novels. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stay until the end for a peak preview of what's coming up next week. Lots of books to talk to you about today. Um, you know, one of the most interesting things for me getting uh, the books we're going to talk about is how uh, diverse and interesting they are. <laughs> I mean, an editorial career spanning a, a photography book with Peter York on Dictator's Homes all the way to the Booker Prize winning Milkman. Um, but first and foremost, can you tell us a little bit about Faber and Faber and what your role is here? Absolutely, yes. Uh, so um, Faber is... Uh, one of the UK's leading uh, publishers and probably the leading independent publisher. Um, and that is fascinating and interesting and informs the publishing because it means that we're not part of a wider conglomerate. We have independence in relation to our publishing choices. Um, we are uh, mainly renowned for literary fiction, but we publish across a really broad range, actually, from the famous social list, which included sort of Kate Bush lyrics last year in the Beastie Boys, mm-hmm. to uh, Anna Burns, Milkman, who won the Booker Prize, Sally Rooney, who today is, well, tonight is the Costas, and she's already won Novel of the Year, so that's yes. an interesting day. And Waterstone's Book of the Year, and, and, also, and a yeah. million other um, yeah. <laughs> Between those two accolades. ladies, there isn't much still absolutely, available absolutely. for the trophy shelf. It's yes. been an incredible year. Um, but also uh, there's a really interesting non-fiction list. We have a relationship with The Guardian mm-hmm. and also there's Vapor Children's. So we do publish across an incredibly diverse range. I mainly publish fiction. Um, I don't really accept the distinction between literary and commercial fiction, which mm-hmm. we might That's talk about quite interesting, later. Yeah. Um, so I publish across a really broad range um, uh, including Milkman, but also Barbara Kingsolver, whose novel Unsheltered I published last autumn, Akweke and Maisie's debut novel Freshwater, which we published in November. Really, really broad from mm-hmm. the really... Uh, you would see it as quite commercial to the really very literary mm-hmm. and then a little bit of non-fiction and I'm sure lots and lots of people are going to be familiar with probably the best backlist in publishing you know well, the Ted Hughes and the Sylvia Platts and the Elliots of the world I can't believe I didn't mention poetry that's <laughs> extraordinary there you go that's the thing about Faber it is an embarrassment of riches yes. because also the plays I mean you know Tom Stoppard and Alan Bennett don't mm-hmm. usually come low down anybody's list no so that's an omission yes. yeah 
It is. But um, yes, a vibrant, you know, it's been quite incredible walking through the halls here and just, you know, looking at the walls and, you know, in front of us, we've got Heaney and On and Plath and P.D. James. So even yeah. that gives you some uh, feeling of the wealth of stuff here. But um, let's go back and talk a little bit about how you got into publishing originally. Um, because, you know, there are lots of people, I'm finding two things in these interviews, with how people got into it. Either they are the very traditional, I was an editorial assistant and an assistant editor, or they're the very idiosyncratic and slightly unreplicatable of I was the right person in the right place. How right. did you start working in books? Um, uh, it's a relatively unusual path, although it kind of makes sense, I think. Um, I started in academia mm. and I did um, a degree in it. Um, English and American fiction actually and then a master's in cultural theory and then I did a PhD with um, the then Lisa Jardine no longer with us at Queen Mary Um, it was and it was about contemporary uh, American fiction things then published within the last few years she uh, knew that she was going to be a man booker judge Lisa was a renaissanceist but decided that she wanted a student who was going to read everything that was happening in contemporary fiction wow in her and you were stable. that student and I didn't know I was <laughs> until I applied I applied to a different tutor and she took it on and then I spent those three years reading and I've just became completely fascinated by the patterns I saw the relationship to what made success I was teaching this really interesting course with Sarah Churchwell at UEA in bestsellers and just thought yeah I want to get involved in publishing and so managed to get some work experience quite late in the day at mm. Atlantic at which Atlantic. then became a job and the uh, editorial assistant. So I started later than lots of people. It wasn't straight out of university. But you went in at that kind of editorial assistant Absolutely. Role. I started off as Toby's assistant and I yeah. remember being petrified because um, somebody phoned up and said, I said, could they leave a message? And they said, oh, don't worry, it's David. And then they hung up and I thought, I'm going to get fired because I don't know who that is and I don't, you know, I can't translate the message because I didn't understand the sort of fishbowl quality of publishing uh-huh. and that, a certain tone of voice saying a first name would mean that Toby would say my then boss so oh I know who that is that's fine I found that kind of I was a complete outsider I didn't have Mm. lots of contacts and I kind of yeah and uh, so and how long were you at Atlantic then I was there seven years um, from publishing and did you have um, so one of the kind of things that also is that there seems to be uh, when you kind of go into a publisher there seems to be these two types of editors that diverge at certain points one is the maybe um, traditional viewpoint of the, someone who's going to work very closely with the text and copy editing and then there's kind of this other uh, breed who do who at some point start commissioning titles was that kind of the situation at Atlantic or no I find it really interesting I wouldn't even recognise the categories I mm. think and that's one of the things that's amazing about starting an indie is everybody just does everything yeah. um, you know I think when I started there were five of us full time wow. so I would you know I would be doing the publicity with somebody making press releases show cards mm. white wine at events <laughs> copy editing uh, we used to make files ready you know go it to, talking to printers about things freaking out about quark files which is a historical yes, event um, but also writing copy. I mean, you, it, it's the most amazing training because actually everybody in that business is a kind of publisher because everybody is working across yeah. and has to be aware of what you need for the rights deals, rushing around LBF, the book, London Book Fair with people's schedules. It was a completely Catholic experience publishing. <laughs> um, I remember when I started at Unbound and they were kind of still in a, our co-founders uh, residential flat. And, you know, There was bunk beds in the bath still hmm. in there. And exactly. It, it kind of said just start working we'll figure out what you do later exactly Uh, when I started at Atlantic um, 
they still had there was a shower that used to get filled with manuscripts just because <laughs> everything at that point was the, they weren't emailed they were usually sent and became a quite literal slush pile presumably well <laughs> yes I mean it was extraordinary but it was a yes it was a kind of really a, there was no distinction you mm. had to do the close copy editing you had to work with proofreaders yeah and do you think that's kind of held you in good stead I think absolutely I think it's I think it's massively enriching mm. I also think no no bit of the process works without all of it and yeah. so it makes you deeply respectful mm. of other people's expertise and how they can save you when things get hard yeah it's quite interesting because I'm sure you do as well but I, I get emailed quite a lot by people who try and want to work in publishing um, and you know quite often they're uh, very concerned with getting a job in an editorial department mm. because yeah. that's where they want to end up and I always kind of tell them that it's more important the company you're working at rather than what you're doing there to start with that's mm. kind of I feel like this kind of experience you get into somewhere like that where you're doing everything yeah absolutely and you'll figure out what you love later yeah, um, I think that's great advice. And how can you know? I think publishing, yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit. Publishing is a ver- it can be very opaque. It's not very good at explaining what it is as a business. So yes. I don't even know how people are supposed to know which bit of it they're like. Yes. Yeah, and that, I guess, is the problem. It. it can be feel quite the glass bowly, like you mentioned, your own experience. Like you're supposed to know what's going on because everyone else does. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so were you kind of on the lookout for a book? Or, or uh, Let's talk about Peter York in particular. Was this a book that just needed to be made and needed someone to make it? Or were you kind of, uh, you know, looking at manuscripts, hoping that one that you really believed in came along? What was the... it? Again, it was, I think... One of the things that's, again, Stead's independence in really good stead is that they have to be entrepreneurial mm. by nature. You don't assume that you're going to get the first submission of the hottest book because there might be bigger places that... So you're always thinking, what can we add to something? And yeah. so, uh, and something that Toby Mundy really encouraged us to do as well was to generate ideas and make things ourselves. Mm. So this was an idea that I had that I took to an editorial meeting and just said, I, w- I want to do a book called dictator's homes interiors of the rich and terrifying um, <laughs> which is a, is a fabulous <laughs> idea i mean immediately um, everyone's going to want to look at that and see what it was like these kind of i mean it's such yeah. an attractive idea because yeah. i get you know uh, these places that presumably lots of them were torn down immediately after the rains and well absolutely and and peter york was really interesting about this actually which is as well that um lots of more the unfettered power of a dictator means that they nobody controls their taste in a way that mm governments and societies have quite strong views about how they want to represent themselves visually whereas dictators know they're too terrifying so you end up with these amazing real views of what unfettered power looks like say Mm. like general noriega with all these like massive dolls and um and they're not going to have a publicist telling them that they should be wearing they're also not going to have a a treasurer they're not going to have anybody they're not going to have there's no budget there's there's no no budget (laughs) there's no uh pring really yeah. they're unfettered and, and it's quite extraordinary i mean i'm flicking through this book you know you uh you know if you don't stop and look at who it's quite fun to not look before it, to see whose house it is and you know flicking through a, a kind of black and white <laughs> photograph and a quite normal but upmarket looking house yeah. and then suddenly there's kind of an embroidered swastika on a pillow <laughs> on a couch you know it's quite alarming to see that in the in the domestic in the context yeah in the domestic exactly absolutely i think I think the one for me is Saddam Hussein's choice of artwork. Okay. Like, I don't know. I mean, they're basically sort of really pornographic superhero paintings. <laughs> and they just tell you something really strange about a very young idea of Yeah. Uh, and you suddenly also s- start imagining the people who were kind of like, yes, sir. Yes, yeah. Saddam. <laughs> Dude, that's a great thing. Yeah. Um, 
So that must have been an extraordinary book to put together. Um, but they were you. You've listed here a couple of your first buys were in fact novels. Yes, and that naturally, given that my uh, where I'd studied, I think yeah. that was the thing for me is that coming from that background, not only of reading for years, but also this really interesting idea that you know the relationship between the rest of the world and the publishing industry about what makes a book literary mm-hmm. you know one book in a decade makes it into the canon mm. if publishing really only worried about that none of us could stay in business yes so at some level the academic world and sort of the the academic world idea of what makes a literary novel and the publishing worlds didn't really intersect and that mm. really interested me um what made a great novel um and i was really interested in in exploring that through publishing like working out you know what I thought yeah, what was interesting, what stuck, and what I thought would last, like what was really brilliant to read, but also stood a bit of discussion. Right, so that's quite interesting because you just spoke a little bit about Atlantic being quite um, reactionary or quite quick thinking and fitting in around entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial, that's a good word of it, and also having this I, uh, thought of longevity and what's going to survive and kind of but those the, two the things, of those things. Yeah, well, those two things are directly related in that. It, it, all I, I mean, especially in relation to commissioning, entrepreneurial just, and I think this comes up again and again in the pub, in mm. public debates about books is what makes a great book and who decides and just because 12 people have said something isn't great doesn't mean it isn't. Yeah. And so that opportunity, which is after the heat has died down, after everyone has got themselves in a lather about something, mm-hmm. there are all these other really interesting books that you can still engage with and pick up and publish. A really good example is one of the first things that we, I, I was involved in at Atlantic was a book called Bitter Fruit by Ahmad Dangor. Um, now, that was a novel that we didn't buy expensively. It went on to be shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Yeah. On our list, he was a real star. We submitted him. That book was fascinating and brilliant. Maybe on a bigger list, it might have been bought by someone really passionate, but maybe it wouldn't have been the book they submitted mm-hmm. just because of the competition. And having only so many slots you can apply exactly. for. Yeah. So it was about knowing what our what we could make fly and other people's um books that are too small for some places just means that they already have commitments to people it's not that they don't already think it's brilliant yeah so there are publishing i think sometimes it's seen in a way as a hierarchy but actually different editors just know what their company's really good at doing yeah and do you find that um you know having worked at at different publishers you know do you does your brief change slightly absolutely i don't buy the same books you, you, everywhere you're, you're buying favor books here and you're buying harper collins books absolutely and knowing what we can what what we work together to do best what mm. makes sense on our list mm. and yeah so sometimes if i turn something down it isn't because i didn't think it was brilliant or that i could even see it definitely working it's just we're not the right fit yeah and someone else can make something fly mm. and is it also partly i mean um what's also been interesting in the course of doing these interviews is finding out how much work different people do on on their books um and of course it's a bit of a case-by-case basis sometimes mm. it's a lot and sometimes it's not a lot mm. um and you know is it partly i mean not just selling your personal vision but selling the kind of where that author and that book is going to fit in the publisher's uh, space, you know, to the author. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, something I often say to prospective authors that we're considering taking on is, this is what I think the book should be. But yeah. if you don't agree, that's not wrong. You should just find someone. Completely. Who- Absolutely. I think I love significant amounts of editorial work. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of that. I think it's, but it's about, I, I agree completely. Uh, editorial for me is about sort of you, you get something and it might be that it's almost perfect in terms of its 
when I say perfect, what I mean is the best version of itself it can be. Or you might see something and think this has fantastic potential, but the title doesn't work or I might change the structure. But absolutely, what it is is to say, this is what I envision your book being. Here's how I imagine it. And and for me, that comes from the book itself. So I will say, uh, you know, a book that we're publishing in April called The Good Enough Mother is a fantastic and really interesting thriller, but it is also like Stephen Gross, um, a really almost non-fiction engagement with what it is to be in therapy. Mm. And so with that author, that was my pitch to her. It was like, if we publish you, we publish you both as a page-turning novel, but also as a really serious work that people can get a great deal from. If that is a version of the book you're excited by, then brilliant, we can do that together. But if you think you would rather just be published in a really straightforward genre way, mm-hmm. that could work too, and that would be brilliant. But the most important thing is that when you get your finished copy, you recognise your own book. Um, that you think that is what I this this replicates what I was trying to do mm. because I think sometimes you can get seduced by a really a, you know a huge amount of money or an excitable pitch, and you, at the end you think, well, that was amazing, but I don't mm. I don't really recognise my book in this, and that definitely happens as well. So That's interesting. So just to go back to Atlantic, so um, you work on Peter York, Bitter Fruit was to come, and a couple of other novels, Falling by Olivia Liberty, and something that lots of people will recognise now, Call Me by Your Name, um, yes. which is a recent film. So what? Um, did you really have to kind of st- what was the process for commissioning there did you did, did they books come from agents were the kind of direct submissions from uh, authors no uh occasionally a book will find its way to you directly via the most strange and incongruous <laughs> of events dinner parties or something yeah well someone knows someone got, who wrote something yeah th- not so much dinner parties is a bit like being a doctor i think it's a bad idea to admit it <laughs> big dinner parties or weddings what you do I see it, unless unless for whatever reason you've decided to disclose I yeah um, sitting next to somebody on a plane once I think wow um, yeah uh, but most so of both books... of those most of our books come via agents right. or it's an idea that you then go out and seek someone to write yeah for me um, and Olivia Liberty uh, I just I loved it I thought it was a brilliant novel and I have this vivid memory of it being in a meeting and somebody saying, you know, you have to, this is one where you just have to back it because I think a couple of other people don't get it. Mm. So you could either allow that and think, let's not go there or you could, if you feel really strongly. And I thought, I have to back it. Otherwise I will never know what my own taste is because this is my first chance to do that. Mm. And what if I don't go with my own instinct? Then I'll start second guessing it and then how will I ever really acquire because yeah. it's a very weird strange mercurial business yes buying books to and make quite often it is your fighting for it that is going to be the difference absolutely and for the publishing because publishing really is just the act of disrupting busy people with a book you'd like them to read like <laughs> in an office or at a sales conference or yeah. in a bookshop everybody's got other things they need to do i mean mm-hmm. there's a brilliant eddie Izzard line about he's always has this feeling that whenever he tells a joke part of someone's brain is going yeah yeah hurry up I've got eggs on and that element of you know yeah because I mean I guess one of the challenges about publishing is there's never there's there's always enough books already precisely right nobody ever comes to you and says I can't find find there's just nothing yeah so uh, it is trying to you know that's part of the art part about what you know coming from your academic background about introducing something into the cultural awareness exactly and so that that even that first stage in the company is good practice for the outside world where yeah and it's something people talk about a lot of getting people inside internally as a absolutely vital first step because they are whatever the 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 first 
people who are going to excite the outside world absolutely um, um something that uh we used to say a lot again my old boss's uh phrase at atlantic was you publish a book four times oh. you publish it into the company you publish it into the trade which is booksellers but also bloggers key people you then publish it quite often books have two iterations you then publish it in hard back into sort of the or the first outing into the world and then you might do a mass market paperback mm. and you need to get all four of those stages right in order to have yourself a that's quite an interesting way of looking at it um and yeah i wanted to talk a little bit about something you've touched on is that kind of because looking down the the list of incredible novels you've worked on um something like nathan father's shock of the fall kind of stands out here which is something again you you slightly touched on is this kind of crossover or maybe non-existent barrier between the literary and the commercial so Mm. that book when it came out was just everywhere uh you know won all the prizes but was also a massive seller um Mm. And, you know, I'm sure it's something we'll come on to talk about with Milkman as well. But talk a little bit about that um, crossover if you see it as one or if not. So, yeah. So uh, uh, Milkman and Nathan and Shock of the Fall had very different journeys. So Shock of the Fall, when it was submitted, was a huge publishing phenomenon. Mm. There were 14 wow. offers in the first round. And I didn't get it on submission. Right. I wasn't one of the first people to be sent it it was i don't remember how i got hold of it actually i really need to but um it was when i worked at HarperCollins, and i did get hold of it from somebody i think wasn't maybe keen but wasn't sure and just was like we absolutely have to do this and then um phoned up the agent and persuaded her to let me join an already running auction on the grounds that we would make it really interesting yes um and absolutely i think that readers don't this idea not only the distinction between literary and commercial which i don't think is really all that helpful for anyone in the sense that there is a literary fiction as a genre is a bit really indexed thanks to experimental fiction and ideas about um uh at the moment particularly about technically stretching writing um so i think it can intimidate i think it can um accidentally exclude um, and I think it really often is about the idea that a book is going to find its way into the canon, which I basically reject on the grounds that, like I say, that's one book every 10 years and none sure. of us know which book that is. So if you don't buy into that, then what you're left with is this really interesting space where lots of books are brilliantly constructed. And for what me, my kind of passion is that really, really brilliantly constructed novels can wear their technical expertise incredibly lightly. Mm. So you're not aware of it when you read or you don't have to be aware of it when you read. But if you want to go back and look for it, it's there. These books stand scrutiny. You can talk about how they're structured. You can have a really interesting conversation about what they're trying to do. And The Shock of the Fall is a perfect example of that. It is an incredibly accessible book that takes you on a really moving journey, but it is also um, unbelievably technical because it takes you inside a schizophrenic episode. And lots of books describe that, but very few books actually allow you mm. to travel. So, that under kind of, when you go back to kind of stare at it and try and figure out how exactly you've achieved this, it absolutely, it does both of those things. Which is... It does both of those things, but also it's really hard to write from inside yeah. an experience, particularly one that's regarded as sort of um, mentally complex. So, for me, yeah, it was, and then um, it's interesting because it wasn't an instant hit. It, we uh, p- worked really hard to make a huge noise for Nathan, but initially it was very quiet. It was still quite taboo to be writing about mental health. Some people felt anxious about it. I was talking to him the other day about a Hay event where I think there was like his mom 
his agent and one other person and uh and then things started to really happen but it was probably about six months after we published when the prize attention and then right it began to really take off and then it went bananas um and considering then again you know you there's plenty of shortlists and winners on your uh, cv but uh, what um what what do you think about the position of kind of literary prizes in that discussion about um literary and commercial you know are, do you think that they should be uh trying to find those books that are entering the canon do you publish with the idea that you will need to get on a shortlist or something to get attention for these books what what position do they play in your kind of consciousness um, prizes are really significant. I think that they do lots of interesting things to the cultural conversation. You can never publish counting on a prize shortlist. It's just it, the odds don't work. That isn't to say you don't publish really confidently believing something deserves to be on mm-hmm. a shortlist, if that's not yeah. a, too sort of a, t- a tight distinction. Um, I think that... The re- these really great and interesting prizes have a very clear idea of what they're trying to do, and whatever they're trying to do, I think I have no be- I have no beef with that. Uh, when I get frustrated is when I think a prize has lost sight of its own intention, um, and then that can be tricky. But I think, for example, I think the Booker Prize has a very clear idea of what it's doing, yes. and that therefore makes perfect sense. But it does to readers as well. I think you know. I think if you ask lots of readers what they think they'll find with a Booker Prize book. That that's a pretty good. Mm. Um, uh, it marries up. Yes, thank yeah. you. Sorry. Yeah, Ran and I think also there. you know there's things like the Goldsmiths, which has a really yeah. clear focus. Absolutely. Um, it's not saying this is the best book of the year, but it's trying to do you know those focus on a specific aspect of it. And I, I think, think also with the Costa as well, feels like it has a certain yeah, identity. I agree. I completely agree. I think the thing that's really much harder is that there's been this huge shift because publishers used to be talking to booksellers and booksellers. You know, Waterstones had categories. They organised their subject, their books and subject matter, or you could go and look at a table of new fiction. We moved to much more of an online life, and I think why these, you know, you're getting a fantastic rise in um, bookstagrammers is there is this huge gap, recommendation gap, mm. where publishers have been very bad at wanting people to be in touch. They've definitely changed their mind about that now, by the yeah. way. I think they very much like people being in touch. <laughs> um, but that move from I'm talking to a, a buyer who will buy this for the crime section or the new debuts table. Uh, being a kind of B2B business. Exactly, as opposed to publishing direct to readers and trying to think directly about their reading experience. And, you know, readers buy it in really eclectic ways because we all, that's how we all live all of our lives. Nobody, it is very rare to only wear one fashion brand. It is very rare to only buy, uh, you know... Brands of food, anything. Completely. You know. And the idea that anyone wants their sort of literary output to be received in that way doesn't make sense mm. you don't go into you know m- few people organize their bookshelves by category and most people <laughs> don't think i'm just going to pick up my 12 literary fiction books for the year yes from um, on january the first yeah you know trying to cook from uh, the beastie boys is a terrible idea actually it's not it has got recipes in <laughs> i might have known i picked the one book which does have recipes in but um you know and i think that's a big change and prizes really help with that because i think that had how do I get from this book I've loved to something else I think is really great? It's hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and has that changed, you know, Faber or your personal? Like, what, what, how do you see that gap being filled? Because I know it's a bit up I, in the air. It was one of the reasons I was, I mean, obviously, Faber's a really exciting place to be and I had massive imposter syndrome. But um, one of the things that really attracted me is that it genuinely exists as a brand for readers. Yeah. 
um, it, it means, you know, that colophon, the FF, it means something to pe- readers of poetry, it means something to readers of literary fiction. I think that's something that pretty much nobody else has mm. in British publishing. I think that the Penguin brand is so massive now and so amortised across um, uh, other products, actually, that whilst it still means something, it is it is broad. The Faber offering is pretty yeah. clear, I think. I Penguin means books. Exactly. Faber means literature, Faber. maybe. And, uh, yeah, and I think that that's, as a publisher, that's incredibly exciting and it means mm. that we do have, you know, I'm not going to get the numbers right, but the, you know, hundreds of thousands of, uh, followers on Twitter yeah. and, and membership programs and events I mean it just gives you we license di- to do all these things we have a direct relationship that, that communicates and that that's un- and so for me particularly actually with fiction that I think is more accessible that's incredibly exciting hmm. um, it is one of the um, you know I think lots of publishers uh, strive for that but it's you know it takes 100 years to do maybe um, but you know a favor one of maybe five publishers that you could say I really know what a favor book is and but Faber might be the only one that uh, crosses into the general public's awareness of doing that I, as well. I think there's a pretty good chance that's true. Um, but you've also published some nonfiction in your time. Yes. Um, so I've got a few memoirs here. So I've got everyone from Too Many Mothers, which yes. is Roberta Taylor, who people might know from EastEnders and The Bill, yes. to Jay-Z. That was amazing, <laughs> yes. So um, talk a little bit about uh, that experience. I mean, you've also, like, I mean, so I'm guessing... Uh, Too Many Mothers was probably a UK first outing, whereas Jay-Z, were you guys doing the UK edition of a yeah. US title? So, uh, again, Too Many Mothers was entrepreneurialism. It was right. it was a book that grew out of a relationship with Roberta. I think Toby met her at an event for a book launch, thought that it would be interesting. And you know, we worked really, really closely together. We went away for a week and wow. worked in real time on the edit yeah so that was an incredibly close editorial relationship um, and is that uh i mean just while you're on this subject i mean are you uh, do you find yourself doing varying levels of editorial on every single book yes you're not buying as is very rarely no yeah i don't i i do buy as is relatively rarely i don't buy a huge amount mm. from the states not because it's not fabulous uh but because i really enjoy the rolling up my sleeves the creative process it's quite addictive editing is quite addictive yes I, I find I know and it's quite um, hard to read other people's books because you always find something you want to do differently absolutely <laughs> and and but it's also quite hard to stop mm. um, I'm working with Nathan on his new book at the moment Great. Um, uh, which is non-fiction called The Heartland which we're publishing later this year and there is a moment where you're like, we just have to stop now. We have to stop tinkering. Like, yeah. We can definitely keep. I've, you know, that old adage of, uh, you, you know, a book is never finished. You just get to a point where you can let it go. Exactly. Um, and do you feel, I mean, it's one of the things that kind of uh, came under criticism recently from the Booker judges, for instance, was kind of under-edited books. I mean, I just, that for me is a nonsense. And I'll tell you why. I, I tweeted about this, actually, because it reminds me of the mumps, which is on a seven-year cycle. Like, every seven years, somebody says books are on the reason I think it's a nonsense is how does anybody know that presumes you know what the manuscript looked like when it first came in mm-hmm. and nobody does so uh, I, I remember back at my first job this amazing editor of nonfiction. he'd had this brilliant idea he'd worked with an expert in the field I think they delivered 260,000 words they went through eight iterations it, it was an incredible work he cut out two strands it was non-fiction it was eventually published and a newspaper said, what a shame that somebody didn't bother to edit this. Oh, dear. And you just... But actually, that for me... I mean, it was sort of laughable. It was like, you just... 
how do you know that nobody edited it by definition you don't you might think that this book could have been improved to be shorter there was a kind of review that I take issue with with Milkman that said it could be snappier which I kind of um, makes no sense to me in relation to what the book is Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I just I don't know we're all entitled to ask books to be different things but unless it just seems unscientific to me unless you know that nobody touched it how do you know that somebody didn't edit yeah, it? Uh, editing is by... Sorry, look, I'm on a soapbox. <laughs> but editing is by definition invisible. You can't see If you're seeing it, it's not done. doing it right. Yeah. And, and, and therefore, choices are made. And sometimes editors can't persuade authors to do things. I've been in situations where I've fought tooth and nail for somebody to make a change and they have refused. Yeah. And it's their name on the cover and they're entitled to publish the book. And all you can do mm. is say, I want you to face the criticism from me in a private room not in an open dialogue on social media or in a newspaper. Yeah, I don't want the first time you hear this to be... But ultimately, you know, and that's a, I think that goes back to your point, which you're absolutely right about, about being clear at the outset yeah. of where you think something is headed. So you, you, don't, you need to say if you think it needs a lot of work and hope that somebody's comfortable yeah. with that. Or change the title, or I see it sitting alongside this. Those are the kind Ex- of... Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Try and give them a sort of a sense of where you're headed with it. But I think, yeah, I think that sort of... That feels to me like it doesn't really stack up. Mm. But then I probably would say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, um, so bringing off on a tangent, we're talking about Roberta and um, mm. that being quite an involved editorial process. Yeah. I mean, uh, was that a book that you had met the person, but the book wasn't yet written? So you were kind of yes. there all the way through the journey. Yes. That's quite an interesting thing. I do some work for a kind of writing school and it's very much that people at the start of yeah, writing their book. Really and it's exciting. such a different experience. It is. Um, and it's as much about I find just getting them to keep writing as it is about anything else absolutely I think you're Um, totally right and and yeah uh, uh, another just looking through your favour list another kind of um, uh, book of non-fiction I want to talk about which is is Letters to Louis the Alison Mm. White book Mm. Um, that's quite a challenging amazing uh, thing to have to work on and to publish Um, how was that process was it did you have to be more delicate did you have to be you know what was the situation it's a really interesting question um so Lester Louis is a memoir um uh, a sort of love letter from a mother to her disabled son each and um that's kind of a really good example Alison is extraordinary and brilliant to work with and um that came via her agent but when I got it my view of it was that it didn't work for me in the way it had been constructed for the submission I see there were two strands one of which we cut out. So it's a, it's a, it was a very significant edit. It was called something different. Um, and our, our, my first conversation was with um, Caroline and her agent and with Alison to say, I love this and I think the voice is incredible. I think for Faber, it needs to work as a literary work. And so there was a slightly more sort of campaigning element, which could have worked brilliantly for somewhere else. It's like, but for us, this is how we would do it. And so if that if that works for you then brilliant let's do that together but Mm. if you just as you were saying but it's totally legitimate if you want to keep some of those other strands and and go elsewhere and and Alison it it chimed with her Um, and so then and so then we introduced the structure of the chapter for each year and we uh, yeah it was a joy actually but that's because we agreed on sort of the end kind of we're on the same page totally (laughs) totally and incredibly proud to publish something that is still a taboo subject. Disability is a really yeah. difficult subject to publish on. Yeah, we published um, one of the books that um, Unbound published, uh, 
um, it's an incredible book about kind of surrogacy and stillbirth. Um, wow. And again, it was had a really challenging title that put lots of people off, but the author was very, very clear, Alice Jolly, who's an extraordinary woman and writer, um, which is called Dead Babies in Seaside Towns. And that was what, for her, that was absolutely crucial to mm-hmm. what that book had to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it, you know, it, we're fortunate in our kind of crowdfunding model that yeah. we were allowed to open that up to the public and say, well, do you want yeah will you, you agree this? yeah and yeah and, and so that kind of chimed perfectly but yeah again that yeah. was something that uh, understandably was quite a difficult book to write and to publish um, absolutely yeah so it's a different experience as an editor as well i think absolutely it is a different experience i think that's true generally of non-fiction mm. i think often you're dealing with people whose first job isn't to write which doesn't mean they're not superb at it but it's just a different mindset if you're already you know yeah in yeah. a different field whatever that is including you know parenting mm. children with uh, significant disabilities correct and now i think we're going to talk about milkman a little bit okay so um yeah talk about uh, so had you published anna previous is this your first time working together it's our first time working together i hadn't published her previously she was published previously by philip Gwynne jones at flamingo and then fourth estate and then there was a sort of good eight year hiatus mm. No, uh, I uh, met Anna's agent, David, who um, pitched, told me about the novel over lunch when we were talking about another author that we share, Barbara Kingsolver. And uh, my family are from Northern Ireland. My parents are both, um, and and they left uh, in the early 70s. So it's a place I know more about than some, well, quite a few <laughs> uh, and so I was incredibly interested in, in when David described it and just fell head over heels pretty instantaneously and got slightly panicky that we wouldn't get to publish it because we had it exclusively because I didn't know that there'd been other conversations prior to that Right. Um, that's happened to me twice that happened to me also with Stay With Me that I published at Canongate where I read it and my major anxiety was that we wouldn't be able to publish it. But you were so desperate to get it that that was... That was my major... Exactly. It was like the worst thing that could happen here is now I've read these books is that there's always a horrible bit when you fall in love with something before you've managed to acquire it. Yeah. Where you just... you know. But that's that must make you feel in a way like so certain that you want it. That's... Yeah. It's exciting to feel so certain but you don't have that control which Mm. uh, uh, is interesting. And But with both of those books there were some things I didn't know just about other conversations that meant that the field wasn't quite as open as I thought people had already taken right. the view unbeknownst to me so my panic was unfounded thankfully brilliant <laughs> um, yeah and what about that book because it has such a um, distinctive style mm. and voice and everything mm. to it how what was the process did it come to you uh, with all of those things or how involved? yes no Milkman was very fully formed right. I mean Anna is you know I think you know it's her fourth novel and it's an incredibly technically uh, acute book. And the interesting thing editing it is, um, so for me, it's not experimental. It's got nothing to do with modernism. It's a vernacular novel. It's more like Saturday night, Sunday morning. It's about understanding a voice in a place. And Anna's a very technical writer. And so actually, it's very hard to cut anything because everything feeds into something else. Absolutely. And any bit of repetition or anything is absolutely purposeful. Exactly. And so what you what you would find is that that it was one of those edits where I would think, oh, this is interesting. I might tighten this. And then you just end up rubbing things out. Yeah. You put a line through two words. (laughs) No, I knew it. I knew that was going to come back to haunt me. I also think this was one of the reasons I was really excited for it for prizes 
is that it is a novel that improves on second reading mm. because I think that for me there's this incredible twist at the end where you realise that what have seemed like digressions aren't they're yes. fundamental to the characters character. so yeah. middle sister seems on the inside of something that she's in fact on the outside of mm. so lots of these digressions are about whether you're inside looking out or outside looking in yep. and what you realise is at the end of the book she's completely flipped it and all of the things you thought she was within I, I, I don't want to spoil it well I'm not yes. going to spoil it it's the most obtuse plot spoiler <laughs> I could imagine yep. it's kind of perfect for down moment. to the character names <laughs> but, um, but that for me even the character names and that's something I recognised and I think that's been really picked up in their sort of general discussion is that in Milkman, not naming characters is not a modernist trope it is chatty it is how my auntie talks about the people in her street Absolutely. she doesn't always say that you don't know name. their name is extra she just y. says the one with the teeth and yeah, you know yeah, who yeah. that is yeah. So for me, that's a kind of slightly publishing misconception, which is, and in a way, unconscious bias in the sense that she's Irish, therefore it must be in conversation with Beckett and Joyce. No, Anna read Beckett after she'd finished this. And the no names thing has to be experimental. No, it is It is absolutely an auditory quality that lots of people absolutely. use in communities. Yeah, and she's also doing that thing of it's, it, she's just describing them in the most literal way possible. Exactly. Like how they are in relation to her. Exactly. Um, and it was funny to me reading it, I mean, it's a completely different medium and trying to do a different thing, but in the last, kind of in 2018, two amazing things came out of Northern Ireland, which was Milkman and Dairy Girls. Yes! And, and the crossover between those two, you know, uh, Northern Irish women finding their often incredibly funny voice, uh, you know, in kind of quite disparate mediums, but seem to just and chime, of course, with what everything else was going on with yeah. backstop and all those things. Um, you know, it was just it just sang and it just really stood out as something Completely. kind of unique and brilliant. But also, you know, I don't, I can't remember a booker certainly in the last few years um, causing as much discussion and difference and yes but also selling loads of copies i know uh, which is just kind of incredibly heartening isn't it um, it's wonderful and people just not being told absolutely it's this is difficult people saying and well not- i feel a bit i feel a bit for the judges because actually the word and i think this is really interesting and this is sort of a very editory thing to say i guess but the word that the cha- chair of the judges used was challenging mm. And what frustrates me is that the literary establishment then takes that as a negative because in a sporting context, challenging means you're going to win something. It means you're the challenge, like boxing, the challenger is coming out the outside. Like it's, it's got positive connotations. It's about reordering Mm. the hierarchy. And I think that it's a shame that that the literary world just assumes that challenging was the same as difficult, was the same as, you know, hard, hard, (laughs) was the same as unsaleable. And Mm. I think... I also think that the honest truth is as well that with Milkman, for some people, they had overlooked it. And most things are difficult if you have to read them in eight hours and write about them the first thing the next morning. Yeah, I read them twice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So there was an element of, I think, people being caught a little off Yeah, of guard. not having seen it. Yeah. That's and quite... so... But it yeah. must be, I mean, um, sitting in favour, I mean, it must have been, it's such an encouraging year. I mean, taking yeah. the Sally Rooney and this together, as you said, not just um, winning every prize going, but uh, also, you know, being performing very well. Yes. And it, it kind of uh, is so encouraging. And 
um, something I've been asking lots of the editors um, to finish on, and we might move on to it in a moment, is you know uh, one of the books of recent times that you'd wished you'd gotten to publish, uh, and at least half of them so far have said normal people as well. Um, but again, it just <laughs> I think, and you know, someone summed it up perfectly, saying not because of not just because of what the book is, because of what it's done, and mm. my perception of what people will read and how mm. many people will read it is kind of and the kind of thing it slightly ties in more what you've been saying about this kind of idea of the literary which isn't helping anyone exactly um, and it is in fact hindering people i know um but yeah i mean i'm sure you you've, I think that's right. you've got quite a few you know as always with favor an incredible list of books coming in uh, later this year yes um so i might just finish by talking about a few of those so um we've got samantha irby <gasps> yes <laughs> so much fun have you read any of it uh, i can see her sitting on your shelf behind you uh, so this is We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. Um, and uh, this is a New York Times bestseller. I mean, it, uh, as I think it says on the back, if you haven't heard of her, where have you been? Um, <laughs> she's just been everywhere. I mean, I think eagerly anticipated as an understatement. But And I also do think any book with a cat on the front. Angry you, cats, <laughs> right? Angry cats sell books. This is a fact. Um, so this is, you guys are doing the UK edition of this. Yes. Um, that must be very exciting. Uh, and then you another few, you know, just looking down this list, I mean, uh, I'm sure the Max Porter book must be one of the most eagerly anticipated of the year. That's going to uh, be a phenomenon, I think. Yeah, I and think. the physical thing, which I um, glimpsed on Twitter, looks like a beauty. Uh, and we've got it Claire McClasson, The Rapture. Yeah, that's really exciting. That's a debut novel. It's not till the summer. But it's, yeah, it's... Um, it's based on a true story of a cult, an English cult in Bedford in the 1920s. And all of the characters in it but one existed. Oh. Um, uh, and it's just, it's kind of the most brilliant, weird, wonky. One of the things I love about Faber is that we just say this is extraordinary and we don't worry about fitting it into a wider sort of thread or picture. We are happy with incongruity. Right. And this is sort of, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's sort of got the quality of the girls and that it's this extraordinary portrait of a time and place and these women living um, under immense pressure in this little cult. But it is also sort of slightly Jeeves and Worcester, almost French and Saunders, because there's a terrible comedy to their lives. Um, they are a domestic cult. They are set up by a woman who believes that um, uh, Jesus is about to return and that she is the daughter of Christ. And in real life, co-opted thousands of people into this cult around the world women come to worship her they all buy property together they live in a square in Bedford you can go and visit it um uh but really it's about this collective unconscious of these women who have lost husbands fathers brothers it's the 20s and so the return of Jesus becomes a collect a kind of unconscious return of these men lost at war right so it's very domestic Jesus is coming but what they're doing is competing over making him the nicest table napkins and you know, there's a brilliant line which says that, you know, the Lord, we may not be able to guarantee the Lord a clear conscience, but we can at least offer him a clear complexion. <laughs> and I just love the idea that what he really wants is a pimple free kind of collection of days. So it's kind of dark and brilliant and odd mm. and very moving. And it's a portrait of female friendship. Wow, in fact, how interesting. Um, so we've talked about lots and lots of books you've worked on. I was wondering if there is a kind of unifying theory. Is there something that you think you look for in a book? Is there something that... Um, what makes a Louisa Joyner book? Is that too hard, too hard to say? I think, I think I try really hard not to look for anything. Mm. I love constantly being surprised. I mean, I strength of voice really matters to me. And I think I look for originality. That's a really difficult word but by which I mean I really like something 
that is makes me feel a little uncomfortable perhaps or that I'm completely unfamiliar with or that I recognise I haven't seen before. Um, I think the going right back to the beginning, all that time spent reading a lot of American fiction, um, the American market has never worried about the distinction between literary and commercial. Michael Chabon's Cabinet and Clay can be a, a, a sort of almost fantastical journey of ease and brilliance and also a huge hit. And I think that quality of storytelling really matters. Mm. I want... I politically I'm really invested in publishing accessible books that for as many people as possible and I love that yeah that Tony Morrison quality of I want to read I want to read and publish books that you don't come across you don't find every day that you that take you somewhere new that offer you an insight or an experience that you haven't had before I think that's really exciting brilliant thanks so much um, and I'm going to ask you one question um, at the end so uh, because we've talked about lots of books you have published is there one in the last kind of 12 months or so that you'd wished one book that you that you've as a reader you kind of said I absolutely love this this is kind of um, incredible there are lots I mean um, I think one that really sticks in the mind because it was on people were talking about it the, my first day at Faber was is The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock which I just loved I loved loved it but it was also my first day and I remember thinking am I going to have the world's shortest career at Faber because we're not publishing The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock so thank you and goodbye um, I think it's really witty I think it's really smart and again I think it takes you to a really interesting place in terms of sort of Georgian culture ideas about sexuality and marriage um, in the most deeply enjoyable fun you know how many novels have green pubes if you haven't read it that should be the threat line yeah okay well if that if that's not a note 10 then i don't know join me next week when my guest will be scott pack uh, scott used to run his own imprint at harper collins he's also the former head of buying at waterstones for any aspiring authors out there he's the author of how to perfect your submission uh, based on his guardian masterclass of the same name and scott has promised he will be revealing a genuine industry secret If you've enjoyed today's show, it really does help us out if you can leave a short review wherever it is you listen to your podcast and subscribe. Thank you.